Hey, good morning, church. Let's, uh, let's praise the Lord once again for our students and their, uh, using their gifts to serve. Love that. Love seeing you guys up here using your gifts. Love uh, getting to learn some new songs that uh, you guys do in youth that we don't usually do. And most of all, just love your hearts. And I just know that you guys uh, aren't up here uh, because you want all the eyes of our church on you, but it's because of your love for the Lord and, and wanting to use the gifts that he's given you. So uh, thank you guys so much. Praise the Lord uh, for that. And praise the Lord for the time of worship that we've had already this morning. And now we are going to continue in worship the only way we know how here at Rock Prairie Church, which is uh, by preaching the Word of God. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I want to thank Pastor David for preaching in my absence as we were on vacation last week on uh, Daniel chapter 6. And now we are continuing on in Daniel chapter 7. This week is going to be one of an unknown number of weeks in Daniel chapter 7. I have This is something that none of you care about, but it drives me nuts. I have stuck to my preaching schedule that I laid out for Daniel up until this point, and now it's all about to go haywire, so I don't know what's, what's ahead. But we are going to be in Daniel chapter 7 for a little bit. Maybe one more week after this, maybe two or three or ten, but it's going to be a little while. Um, it's because this is a massive chapter. This is a big chapter. This is to Jesus, who we should take his opinion pretty seriously on these things. To Jesus, Daniel chapter 7 was one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. And also, Daniel chapter 7 is one of the more confusing passages in all of Scripture as well. So if you have one of these, like, you ever seen these four-quadrant graphs? It's like, uh, so if we had one of those and it was like one of the axes was difficult to understand and the other one was important, uh, this would be like in the far upper right uh, quadrant of that graph. So which means uh, we needed to spend some time on it to understand what's going on. So like I said, we're going to spend at least one more week in it next week, and then we'll see how I feel after that. We'll see how we as a church feel after that. But uh, all, the, all I know is it'll be a little bit more than we originally planned. And this morning's going to be a little different because really it's going to be a lot of introductory material to not only this passage, but the type of passage uh, that this is. And uh, before we dive into the meat of the passage, so a side note in uh, all the preaching books I read, they say if there's one thing that you should do to like get your congregation just like on the edge of their seats, so excited to hear what you're going to say next, you should tell them that you're going to preach introductory material. They'll just go crazy for it. So I know that you guys are like so excited now because I said that. Uh, I know my preaching professor will be proud of me. But anyways, all that to say, we got some work to do in this passage. And uh, this week, this morning, we're going to begin that work. And so I hope you're ready to do that work with me, which means I want you to have the passage in front of you as I do every week. Uh, uh, it is uh, equally important every week, but it's especially equally important this week. And so um, if you would, if you have it uh, in, in uh, book form, uh, then uh, turn there. If you have it on your phone, go ahead and tap there with me. But either way, I'd love for you to have the passage in front of me in whatever translation you prefer. And I'm just going to trust that the Lord's going to do a mighty work in and through us this morning. So before we dive in uh, to the massive chapter that is Daniel chapter 7, please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are uh, so good to us. Thank you for that song uh, that we just sang about our homecoming. Lord, give us a greater longing for our homecoming with you, God. Lord, even as we think about that, we think about those who have gone before us, the saints who have already died, Lord, and we think about the joy that they experience uh, as the moment that they transform 
transition from this life into the next, into immediately into your presence, God, Lord. And we uh, think about Jim Comstock and the Comstock family, Lord, and we lift them up to you and just ask that you would continue to comfort them as they mourn, not as those without hope, Lord. But, uh, specifically, we want to pray for Cap- Carolyn and uh, as she... Uh, um, continues on now without her partner of 59 years uh, by her side, Lord. And so we just ask that you would be near to her, Lord, and that our church would love and uh, come alongside her as we're called to care for widows. And so, Lord, we pray that we would do just that as you call us to do biblically. God, I pray for us as we dive into this passage in Daniel chapter 7. I'm excited, uh, even as I don't really know all that you're going to have for us in it, God, I'm excited to see what you're going to do. So I just pray that you would use our time in your word. Bless it, Lord, as you always do. And as like we always say, God, it, it, without your spirit moving and explaining these things to us, it's, it's useless. It's worthless, Lord. So I pray if there's anyone in here this morning who doesn't know you, God, who's not yet saved, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And for those of us who are saved, Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would sanctify us, uh, challenge us, convict us, encourage us, spur us on, all these things, Lord, that your word does. I ask that you would do that through your power, God, and none of my own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I was uh, talking with Pastor David in my office and kind of lamenting just the struggle that it had been to... um, to study this week in, in our passage, I said, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I should have just done a series on the first six chapters of Daniel and tied it up in a bow and, and uh, just called it quits at that. And the reason is, is because, like I said, we're really going to come to not only chapter 7, but for the rest of Daniel, it's going to be a series of very difficult texts. This morning marks a major transition point in our study of Daniel. So in chapters 1 through 6, we've had a lot of very familiar stories to us, right? If you grew up in the church, these are a lot of stories that you learned in Sunday school, probably. And we're leaving behind those familiar Sunday school stories, and we're heading, as uh, Elsa would say, into the unknown, right? I was going to sing that, but I thought I can't hit that note, so I'm not even going to try. It's Elsa who says that, right? Yeah, okay. Anyways, it'd be easy to just stop at chapter 6 and move on to something else, but I just don't think we're called to do that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what it says, all Scripture now, if, if the Bible said, in Scripture, you can find all sorts of things that will help you, then we might say, great, let's like dig through to find the things that are uh, the really e- easy and good and helpful and easy to understand passages, and we'll just preach on those. But that's not what the Bible says. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy is writing to Timothy, a young pastor, to help him know how to lead his church. And he tells him, That all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in in righteousness. Which means that we're called to preach all of scripture. Which means that we're called to preach the second half of the book of Daniel. And like we've said, Daniel's a very unique book because as you read it, you're reading these stories. And then all of a sudden, you turn the page to chapter 7 and it's like, wham! You're like hit with this like almost like wall of incomprehensibility. Like, what is happening here? I don't know if you've ever read Daniel in your own personal quiet time and you're like going along and you're like, yeah, this is great. And then all of a sudden, you, like I said, you turn that page and it's like, what in the world am I reading here? What happened? 
Well, that wall of incomprehensibility has a, uh, a name in biblical scholarship, which is called apocalyptic literature. That's really fun to say. Everyone say apocalyptic literature. Good job. That was really good. Uh, it's apocalyptic literature is what we're studying. We have here example number 1,623 of a Theologians using big words when small ones would do just fine. This is one of my biggest gripes with uh, theological scholarship. And this is the definition that I found. I thought, all right, I need to find a definition and share with our church what apocalyptic literature is. So I found this definition uh, from the Society of Biblical Literature, and this is what they say apocalyptic literature is. It says, it is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world intended to represent present earthly circumstances in light of the supernatural world and of the future and to influence both the understanding and the behavior of the audience by means of a divine authority. Do we all got that? Thank you, thank you. So we all understand now what apocalyptic literature is, right? Not so much. This is the kind of stuff I've been dealing with all week in the, my study, by the way. I'm going to have Jacob play me a sad song on his violin after the service. But here's what, here's what apocalyptic literature is. It boils down to three things. First of all, when we read apocalyptic literature, which is the second half of the book of Daniel and, Revel, and the book of Revelation are like the two main examples of apocalyptic literature in Scripture. Three things. First of all, it's highly symbolic. Highly symbolic, which means it's filled with images that represent other things. And so one of the challenges as you read apocalyptic literature is, as you can imagine, figuring out what those symbols mean, right? Sometimes, as we're going to see in the book of Daniel, the author tells us, Daniel tells us exactly what those uh, symbols mean. Other times, you are not told what the symbols mean, and you got to figure it out. So, But that's when, if you're reading apocalyptic literature, you're going to come across a lot of symbols that mean different things. The second thing that we see in apocalyptic literature is that it speaks of future events. Speaks of future events specifically concerning the end of times. It always speaks of the future. Now here's the challenge. We don't always know how far into the future because one of the things, you have to stay with me here, one of the things that as we read scripture, we realize that in some ways we are living in the last days right now. We actually, I think about a year and a half ago, we did a whole sermon series called Living in the Last Days. So in some ways, we're right now in the last days. And yet we also know that Jesus has, is going to return yet again. He came once and he's going to come again. So we're living in this kind of middle period. So with apocalyptic literature, it's always speaking of the last days. The challenge is, especially in Daniel, but in Revelation as well, to know, is the author talking about things that already happened from our perspective because we're so far into the future of when it was written? Or is the author talking about things that are going to happen when Jesus comes back? Or the challenge is, is it both, right? There are sometimes something is fulfilled in one way, but then we know it's going to be fulfilled in another way. I hope I'm not losing you on all this, but the point is, it speaks of future events. The question is, when, how far into the future are these things? And that's what we're gonna, one of the challenges we're going to have as we ta tackle the second half of Daniel. And here's the third thing, and this is the most important thing, and it's the thing I think that we miss the most often, which is that apocalyptic literature is always written in order to offer hope for present circumstances. Okay, this is 
key. This is really important. You can even write that down if you want to, okay? Apocalyptic literature, so whether it's second half of Daniel or Revelation, is written so that you will have hope in your present circumstances. A lot of times I think when we think about, like, say, the book of Revelation, which we probably think about more than the second half of Daniel when it comes to this, but we just think about it in terms of this has all the keys to the future, and so if I'm going to read that, it's so I can know the future. And that's kind of true, but it's not why it was written. It was written so that we can have hope in our present circumstances. And so that is why, even though I've been wrestling in my study all week with this passage, I'm really excited to dive into the second half of the book of Daniel. Because as we read about things in the future, some things will be clear, some things will not be clear. We're going to be given a tremendous hope. So we need to keep that in mind. Now why, so this is what apocalyptic literature is. It's symbolic, speaks of future events, meant to offer hope for the present. Why the Society of Biblical Literature couldn't just say it like that, I don't know. But that's, that's what it is. All right, so now we need to talk about a few things that we want to keep in mind so that we can be good students of this genre of scripture. So there's three things that we want to keep in mind. The first thing as we talk about this is we need to make sure we're asking the right questions. We need to make sure that we are asking the right questions. One of the things that's going to trip us up in the study of apocalyptic literature is asking the wrong questions of the text. So like I said, it's highly symbolic, right? And sometimes we're told exactly what those symbols mean. Other times we're not told exactly what those symbols mean. If we're told what the symbols mean, then we should take that out of face value as that's what they mean. If we're not told what they mean, sometimes that means we're supposed to figure it out on our own. But sometimes it means we are uh, told that uh, maybe there's a, sorry, Sometimes it means we should figure it out on our own. Sometimes we need to understand maybe there's a reason why we're not told what it means. So maybe the first question we need to ask is, why didn't God tell us what this means? Why would God include this detail in his word, right? Because we have to remember, God gave us his word exactly like he wants us to have it. He didn't just like write the important stuff in some chapters and then just kind of all the other stuff is like his notes and he just kind of lumped it all in and threw it all together because it was like a term paper that he was late and he was trying to make sure he made his word count, right? Every single word is very important. So if God tells us what it means, we need to say why. If God doesn't tell us what it means, we need to ask why as well. And then we need to ask, what does this tell us about who God is, and how is it going to offer us hope for the future? So we need to make sure, if we're coming to this saying, I'm going to know and understand, I'm going to have like the keys to unlock every little thing that this says and every little symbol, I'm going to be able to connect it with current events and and historical events and future events, and if if that's your goal coming into Daniel, then I would argue that you're, you're just asking the wrong questions. We need to step back and make sure that we ask the right questions. Second, you can probably guess where I'm going with this, we need to be okay with not having all the answers. So even if we do ask the right questions, we need to be humble enough to recognize that we're not going to have all the answers. Why? Why is that? Well, again, in part, maybe God doesn't want us to have all the answers. But there's another part that's in play, which is that there is a pretty big gulf, G-U-L-F, gulf between who God is and who we are, right? 
Amen? Can we agree with that? Yeah. There's a pretty big gap in God's knowledge and our ability to understand things, right? And the gap for me is probably the biggest of any of us, right? So I remember when I was a kid, uh, there was uh, these new things that came out that were in people's homes called computers, personal computers, right? You, a lot of times you had a computer room. Raise your hand if you had a, a room in your house at one point called the computer room. Raise your hand if you still have a room in your house called the computer room. Does anybody? We got a couple people. All right. Uh, going a little bit out of fashion. But we had to make a big decision in my family. I, I, I remember this as a kid which is, should we try to convince my grandparents to get a computer or not? Did anyone else have these conversations or remember conversations like this? My parents were split on this. My mom said, yes, we should. She thought it would be great for them. My dad washed his hands of it like Pontius Pilate. <laughs> okay, if you're going to do this, this is on you. This is a decision that you are making. And so my mom went out, and, uh, and I remember for a while, night after night, hours and hours were spent on the phone trying to explain how to use this thing, right? And eventually I think it became just like a giant Windows 2000 paperweight is what happened. And uh, just to be clear, I'm talking, my grandma usually watches on the live stream. I'm talking about my grandparents on my mom's side. My grandparents, my grandma, this is for real, my grandma on my dad's side is one of the most techie people I know. She's more techie than I am, so I'm not talking about you, grandma. We can all relate to this one way, right? Either you were, you were probably on one end of that equation, right? You're either doing the explaining or you're the one being explained to. And either way, it felt like there was like a different language being spoken in a lot of ways, didn't it? So we shouldn't be surprised, I say all that, to say we shouldn't be surprised if there is a gap between our ability to discern and understand the realities of the heaven, heavenly realm and then what it's actually going to be like. We're not going to understand it completely until we get there, right? And so we need to be comfortable and humble enough to say we're not going to have all the answers. Now, that is not to say that we can't know anything, right? We don't want to have just a nihilistic view and say, well, it just doesn't matter. We're not going to understand it, so I'm not going to try. No, God gave us his word so that we could know some things about it. And if we say I'm not even going to try, that's just as bad as if we say I'm going to understand it all, right? So we need to approach it with a mindset of a learner that says, I'm going to humbly do my best to understand what this says and then trust that the Lord will have grace for the things that I don't understand. And speaking of grace, here's the third thing uh, that I want us to keep in mind is to have grace for our pastor as we study this. I'm so serious about it. I put it on my PowerPoint. I say it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there's also some truth to it. Uh, the fact is I'm... I'm really wrestling with these things. It's really a, I have this kind of blessing and a curse in my personality, which is just that I uh, change my mind a lot. So you guys all experienced that with uh, Nebuchadnezzar and with chapter 3 and chapter 4. And was it the same guy or was it a different guy? And then I spent a half a sermon explaining why I think it's a different guy. And I'm really sorry, church, but now I actually think it probably was the same guy. So we can just scrub that sermon from the, uh, from the online archives. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> So anyways, what I'd always try to do when there's disagreement 
as I try to tell you what the different opinions are and then why I land in a certain place, and I hope you have grace for me to understand that maybe sometime I'll land in a different place, but I just always approach all these things recognizing way smarter people than me have studied this way more in depth than I ever have, and they've come, across, come down on different sides of the issue. And so um, there's that sense, but then there's just a sense of like, we're just not going to have enough time to talk about everything that comes up. So look with me, look at your Bibles at verse 5. It says this, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Okay, so that is that's kind of what we're working with here. So what are we going to ask? What in the world does that mean, right? Why is it a bear? Why is he raised up on one side? Why does he have three ribs in his mouth? Why is he devouring flesh? What does it mean for this bear to devour flesh on and on and on? There's like six questions that you can ask just by reading this verse. And each of those questions probably has six different answers of six different opinions that people have on those things. And so we're just not going to be able to cover everything, okay? So here's, this means two things for us. Number one... I don't talk about this enough but, uh, from the pulpit, but this is a really good opportunity for you to study these things for yourself, right? Like this is, uh, we should all be studying God's word if, if uh, we, God's word is our food. <laughs> so if you're coming to church for one meal a week uh, and you're, you're wondering why, why you're hungry throughout the rest of the week, right? That's, uh, we, we need to be feeding ourselves on God's word. We need to be a church that's just like hungers after the word all the time, right? And so this is a great opportunity for you to study these things on your own. And if you want recommendations for resources on how to study these things, I got recommendations like crazy. That's like my favorite question to ask or to have people ask is uh, recommendations for resources for studying these things. So that's number one is encouraging you to study yourself, but then also just have grace and understanding that, um, there's a lot of reading that I need to do to uh, put all these things together, uh, to uh, synthesize it all into a sermon that helps us understand it and also apply it to our lives and gets us out of here in enough time uh, to uh, beat some of the other churches to Jim Dandy. So like, we need to just have grace that like, it, we're not going to be able to cover everything, and, um, and that's okay. So it gives us a chance to study it on our own. But, uh, so if you think I missed something major, you can feel free to send me an email or, or whatever, but uh, I'm going to do my best here. So that's, all of that is like the background uh, to what we're going to do now as we talk about Daniel. He's, Pastor Mike, it seems like you're uh, stalling a little bit. I mean, I am stalling a little bit, but it's time now for us to dive back into the book of Daniel. And what I really want us to see as we, and we talk about the lead up to chapter 7 is what the author has been doing in a big picture way in the book of Daniel. Because we've, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice we've seen some repeated themes, haven't we? We've seen some things come up over and over again in our time in the book of Daniel. And so I have this chart that I kind of want you to see here. We see chapters 1, 3, and 6. We can get that on the screen there when you can. Chapters 1, 3, and 6 have told us, what do they tell us? Uh, you can put the whole thing on the, on the, there we go. Have told us stories of Daniel and his three friends, and they show us how it's important to be faithful in all circumstances, right? So chapter one, we saw that with Daniel's refusal, and the three friends' refusal to defile themselves with the king's food. Chapter three, the fiery furnace, right? And then chapter six, which you saw, which Dave, Pastor David did a great job of laying out for you last week, Daniel in the lion's den, Right? 
And so chapter 1, they didn't defile themselves, like I said. Chapter 3, they refused to bow down to this golden image. And chapter 6, Daniel refuses to obey the king's order uh, not to pray. And so these stories have given us this great encouragement to be faithful in all circumstances, even in the challenging situation of exile. Chapters 4 and 5 have taught us the same lesson from two different points of view, haven't they? That God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Remember we saw chapter 4, the positive story of a king being proud and then being humbled and having his kingdom restored to him because he's humbled. Chapter 5 shows us the story of the king being proud and he's never humbled and so he has his kingdom removed from him. Both stories show us, warn us of the detriment of pride and teach us to be humble. So we've seen these parallel passages in chapters 1, 3, and 6, and then chapters 4 and 5, and then we also see them in chapters 2 and 7. Chapters 2 and 7 are very similar. Do you remember chapter 2? What happened in chapter 2? This is where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in his dream, there's a giant statue of what? Remember it? Giant statue of a, starts with an M, rhymes with fan. This is a man, yeah. He's got a gold head, so I hear you guys calling it out, and a silver torso, and bronze, or silver chest, bronze torso, I think, iron legs, and then feet that are mixed with iron and clay. Do you remember what all those different portions of the statue represented? Different kingdoms. I can't tell who's calling this out, but you're on a roll. So whoever that is, good job. Lights are a little bright. They all represent different kingdoms, right? And then what happens to the statue? What comes and smashes it? A rock, yeah. And then what happens to that rock? It gets bigger, right? And fills the whole earth. And so what's the lesson of chapter 2? That even though there are different kingdoms that are going to come, but one day God's kingdom would destroy those other kingdoms and rule and reign over the whole earth, right? That's Daniel chapter 2 in a nutshell. Daniel chapter 7 is the exact same thing. Although instead of a statue made up of different kinds of metal, now we have four beasts coming out of the sea, coming out of the sea. And one of those beasts is completely different than the rest of those beasts. So let's now look with me at verse 2 as we finally dive into Daniel chapter 7. Let's see what it says. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So we have a lion with eagle's wings. We have a bear with ribs in his mouth. We have a leopard with four wings. We're going to talk about this more next week. 
But like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, these animals represent different kingdoms, right? Kind of like a bald eagle represents America. These animals represent different kingdoms. But when we think about comparing and contrasting this to chapter 2, these images are a little scarier, aren't they? The kingdoms in chapter 2 were just a part of a statue. Now we have these like moist, creepy animals that are like rising up out of the sea, right? I can't imagine how I'd feel if I had this dream. This is a nightmare, right? But as creepy as these images are, they paled in comparison to what Daniel saw next. Verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Right, so this one's so terrifying that the other three beasts that were also terrifying paled in comparison to this one. This is an appropriate passage to preach on right before Halloween, right? This is like a terrifying thing that's coming. It's like a monster that's coming out of the sea. Most beasts have two horns. How many does this one have? Ten. And it destroys everything in its path. So like I said, it has ten horns. Daniel was wondering about those ten horns, and then something happened. Verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Other translations, your translation might say it had a mouth speaking arrogantly, or a mouth speaking boastfully. So we have these three beasts come out of the sea one by one. And then we have this fourth beast with its iron teeth and its ten horns. And then another horn pops up and it starts trash talking about how great it is. This is, like I said, a nightmare. But that nightmare doesn't last for long. Look at verse 9. The scene starts to change right here in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Like I said, we have so much to unpack. It, it kills me that we can't unpack all of this this morning, but we're going to spend some more time in this later. So this morning, we're just going to kind of, we're taking a Big picture view of what's going on here. We're really going to oversimplify things and think about what does this mean in light of the whole larger message of the book of Daniel. So let's recap. Daniel has this vision of four beasts, each one more terrifying than the last. And those beasts represent different kingdoms that would come and wreak havoc on the world. And that fourth kingdom is the scariest of all, right? It's completely unlike the other ones. And yet... It's no match for the Ancient of Days. 
So what does the Ancient of Days do in verse 9? He takes his seat on his throne. And so just like chapter 2, we see the same thing, that God is on the throne. God is on the throne. So we need to ask ourselves, if it's telling us the same message of chapter 2, why include chapter 7? What's different between chapters 2 and chapter 7? And this goes into the idea of asking the right questions. Why would God give us chapter 7 to tell us that he's going to be in charge of all the kingdoms if he already told us that in chapter 2? Well, there's a couple things that we see here in chapter 7 as we take a big picture view. For one, like we said, chapter 7 is way scarier, isn't it? It's not just a statue. These are real beasts that are really terrifying, and they're really bringing destruction. And so the first thing that this teaches us that chapter 2 doesn't teach us is that God's promise holds true no matter what. No matter what. Even though these human kingdoms are super scary, to put it in technical terms, and bring a ton of destruction, God's promise still holds true. So we as Christians can never say things are so bad that our God must not be in control. No matter what happens, no matter what horrific evils different kingdoms and regimes commit while we're here on this earth, God is still on the throne. We know that. We've talked about it before. But this vision of these beasts coming up out of the sea one by one that from our perspective are terrifying are just ended by the ancient of days. So God's promise still holds true. And not only that, we actually can go one step further and say that God, even though things look terrifying, God is not only going to be in control in the end, He is in control right now. God is the one directing these human events. We see this. What's all over this passage is something called the divine passive. The divine passive means a passive voice that doesn't say who's speaking, that we understand to mean God. We see an example of this in verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a, of a bird on its back. So we have a leopard coming out of the sea with wings, right? And the beast had four heads. Just side note, four heads. And dominion, catch this, was given to it. It's interesting. It doesn't say he was so terrifying with his four heads that he came and he took power and dominion and authority. This beast was given dominion. By whom? God. God. So not only is God in control just like he's going to make it right in the end. This goes to our lack of being able to understand compared to God. We just to say, God, you're God and I'm not. God is the one directing human events even right now, even when it looks terrifying. God is still on control and when the t- on the throne. He's still in control. And when the time comes, he sits on the throne and he destroys the beast. So we need to remember that. We need to remember that. So what do we do? What do we do now? As we think about the entire book of Daniel as a whole, you can go to the next slide. If God is on the throne, what should we do? Be humble. Be humble. And be faithful. 
The message of Daniel so far is that God is on the throne. He is in charge. He is so directing human events. Even if these kings can make, feel like they're the ones who have all the power, they're the greatest, most powerful men in the world, their authority means nothing because God can humble them just like that. God is on the throne. Even kings who are the most powerful kings should be humble. How much more should all of us be humble? Because God is on the throne. Now here's my question, church, and this is what I really want us to think about. If we know that we are part of God's people, and we know that God is going to win in the end, and therefore we as part of God's people are going to win in the end, why would that knowledge that we're going to win in the end lead to humility? Do you see the question that I'm asking? If knowing that you were going to win made you humble, then Ohio State fans would be the most humble people on the planet because they always win, right? Sorry, Dr. Andrews, if you're watching this, I had to go there. Why does knowing that you're going to win lead to humility? Well, sometimes it doesn't. Here's where we need to be so careful about how we think about our position in regards to the God of the universe. Because if you think that following Jesus is nothing more than just making sure you choose the right team so that you can win in the end, then that won't lead to humility. That will lead to pride and arrogance. If following Jesus to you is just a matter of making sure you're on the right side then you're going to become prideful. And ironically, in the end, Jesus may not recognize you. That's what he tells us. Following Jesus, I want to be super clear, isn't just choosing the right side to align yourself with. Following Jesus is choosing to die to myself. Following Jesus isn't just telling people who the king is. It's placing yourself under that king's authority Every single day. It's saying with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But then he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You don't recognize that you're following Jesus because of the grace of God only, then you're not really following Jesus. So how does this play out in our hearts? I think if you see a particular group of lost people and you're filled with pride because you're not like them, then really you're no different than that Pharisee who prayed in Luke 18, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If you understand the gospel, you recognize that that fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 in some ways is true of your heart. And when you realize that God looked at you in that beastly state, and then sent his son to save you, then you will not respond in pride, but you will respond like the tax collector in Luke 18 who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
If you don't understand the gospel, you'll look at Daniel chapter 7 and say, God's on the throne, which means I win, and who cares if I'm faithful anyway, because none of that matters. But if you know Jesus, truly know Jesus, if he's changed you, if you've recognized the depth of your beastfulness, if I can use that word, and then thrown yourself at the mercy of the cross, then you will be humble, and then you will do whatever you can to be faithful. So let me just ask, first of all, do you know Jesus? Like, has he humbled your heart? This might take an extraordinary act of humility to say, I thought I know Jesus. I've been pretending to know Jesus for a long time, but I've never humbled myself before him because of truly the depth of my sin and thrown myself at the mercy of the cross and beat my chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you've never had that happen, you need to make that right today, and you need to go before the Lord. And then if you have had that happen, if you have thrown yourself on the mercy of grace of Christ, which is the gospel, we ask the Lord, God, root out this pride, because we all have it, right? <laughs> root out these areas. I say, I don't want to be faithful to you, God, because I don't think it matters deep down. <laughs> say, God, root it out. Remind me of the gospel. Give me a greater sense of who you are and help me follow you. And when that happens, then you will win in the end and you don't have to be afraid of any stinking beast because the Ancient of Days is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the constant assurance of hope that you give us that you are the one in control, Lord. Sometimes the Christian life is just a reminder every day and every week of the ways that we think we're in control and needing to be reminded that we're not, God. So give us humble hearts to receive it as you sanctify our hearts, as you chip away at those idols that we'd like to put up and worship instead of you. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would come to you with a humble heart and repent and believe. It's like a verse that we read in, call, in the call to worship. They would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. God, we thank you for sending your son, for looking upon our helpless, beastly state and leading us to the cross. God, may we be a people who are humble and faithful because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.